This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 312, The Dangerous Fine Print of Indexed Universal Life Insurance with Lester Himmel. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Join us on September 6th and 7th, 2023 for an incredible two-day Not Your Average Financial Summit event that will revolutionize the way you think about your money. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out on this journey called money, this not-so-average financial summit has something for everyone. Gain some valuable knowledge, learn actionable tips, and connect with like-minded individuals who share your passion for bank on yourself and so much more. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. Mark your calendars for September 6th and 7th, 2023, and register. Head over to our website, notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. That's notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. As always, we are dropping this episode on Friday and TGIF to all those who listen to this on the day it drops. Now, let's fast forward a few hours. To Friday afternoon, and you're finally ready to leave the office and start the weekend. You've been working hard all week, and now you're looking forward to making it back home to relax. You grab your office pack or briefcase, your keys, wave goodbye to your boss, and you run to the elevator. As you reach the lobby, you see a flyer for the circus, and you remember how much you loved circus acts, and you decide to buy a ticket on a whim. You run to the ticket booth, and you got the last circus seat available and you make your way into the circus tent. You watch the show with amazement and awe. You see clowns, acrobats, jugglers, magicians, animals. You have a blast, but you're exhausted. It's been a long week at work. You check your phone on the way out of the circus, and you see you have a missed call from your brother. He needs to know if you'd be willing to babysit his kids for an hour or two. He has an emergency, and his wife is out of town. You agree to help him before heading home. So you run to the bus stop, you catch the next bus, you ring the doorbell and hang out with your niece and nephew for an hour or two. You play with dolls, cars, puzzles, books. You're getting tired, but you look at your watch and you realize it's already eight o'clock and you put the kids to bed. Your brother returns home and you finally can head out of his house and head back to home. But on the way, you remember, oh yeah, I need to pick up the dry cleaning. And oh yeah, the refrigerator is empty and needs some groceries. And now you're getting another text from a friend who said they want to hang out with you at the local bar. So you travel across town seven more times, back and forth, back and forth. You finally make it home to your house at 2.30 in the morning, completely wiped out, exhausted. Now, how much energy did it just take for me to tell you that story? Now, while that story might sound crazy, how much energy did it take just to hear me tell you that story? If you're not exhausted just listening to it, imagine living it. Now compare that back and forth, back and forth, left and right, up and down to the story of someone who leaves their office and beelines it directly to their car and drives directly home without taking any left or right turns and finds the most direct route directly to their garage door and they spend all their evening relaxing and enjoying their evening at home. Which person spent more energy getting home? 
Now, certainly there's plenty of fun to be had at the circus and with your, your niece and nephew, but which one took more fuel, time, energy, and money? If your goal was to get home and have a nice, relaxing evening at home, which of the two people there were more successful? Of course, the person who took the direct route. Okay, so we're going to be talking some more with our great guest today, Les Himmel, who's going to describe the problems with average rates of return and discuss further the limitations of a very popular financial tool called Index Universal Life Insurance. Now, even if you don't own Universal Life, it'll be important for you to understand the problems of volatility, whether you have stocks, bonds, real estate, or any other asset that can produce volatility. We'll also talk some about the recent regulatory changes that have come down on Universal Life, and in particular, how sales practices of this oversold product has brought many people promises that will never be met, unfortunately. And finally, we're going to wrap up with how dividend-paying whole life insurance provides the closest thing to a straight-line projection that you might be able to find in the financial universe, meaning the straight line from where you are today to meeting and exceeding your financial goals in the future without taking any unnecessary risk. So again, Lester Himmel has a wealth of experience in the financial industry, spanning 28 years, various roles on Wall Street, he was in compliance, administration, bond trading, emerging markets, and alternative investments. However, he found his true passion several years ago when he found out about bank-on-yourself-designed whole life insurance to help diversify investment portfolios. Unlike most financial professionals who rely on volatility, Les has found a better way. He likes to keep his investments low-risk and guaranteed and can explain things in simple terms. You can find out more about Les Himmel at 82financial.com. So let's reach out and get back into the conversation with Lester Himmel. Les, welcome back for part two. Mark, good to see you again. All right. Well, as uh, we were just concluding last week's episode, you were giving us some, I think, I guess, sobering news about universal life policies, that they are essentially... Uh, an ongoing increasing cost for life. And oftentimes, and in fact, uh, according to one study, nine out of 10 policies don't end with a death claim with universal life policies. That's nine out of 10. That's a giant cash cow for these insurance companies that are offering these. I mean, universal life uh, among some studies is the most popular insurance product on the market right now. So my question here, Les, is with nine out of 10 policies you know, ending without a death benefit and it being the most popular product in the industry, how did you find this out? And everyone else is just maybe unaware of some of these risks. When I got into this business, again, it was 2004. Uh, my first stop was a public company that uh, thought that universal life was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I listened like everyone else and eventually caught on. There's a story that... Um, well, let's let's divulge. Back in the early 80s, you remember that interest rates were very high when Volcker had to uh, conquer inflation. That period in our financial lives was kind of strange. But at the time, there was a company that, being one of the largest in the industry, was a household name in the New York area anyway, south uh, northeast part of the country. Um. They were doing, as companies still do, what are called GICs, G-I-C's, 
guaranteed investment contracts, which are for our purposes, they're simply large annuities with multiple people covered. And what would happen would be that a, um, a given entity, um, like the Ohio funds or CalPERS in California, or some large employer would go to a series of insurance companies and say, we have the following people retiring over the next 10 years. And we want you to tell us what it would cost us to have you cover their pensions. Here's the census. You tell us what you'd need, and we'll just take the best price from the companies we're asking. Well, when a company makes that bid or that calculation has to be done, they need to know what their anticipation of interest rates are, investment opportunities, how many people, the census, and so on. And this one particular company made bids and actually went bankrupt because they misjudged what was going on in the economy with the stock market interest rates and so on. Well, in the 1985, regulators in that state they're in arranged a marriage with a Wall Street firm so that the company would survive. Insurance companies have that ability, or at least the regulators encourage continuing into the next millennium because insurance companies represent a fabric of society. Well, after one year, the Wall Street company backed out saying, not our business. We made a, a bad call on this one. We're out. Well, that's when another company was brought in, one of the largest insurance companies in the world to take over this New York company. And then over the course of the next five or six years, ended up with enough stock to say they controlled the entire company and changed the complexion of what their, their product mix was by saying to the sales force, okay, whole life is out, universal life is in. That's what we're going to sell from now on. So I came into the company in 2004. And in 2004, we learned all about universal life and all the ups and downs. But I started questioning it because I saw several cases where clients were almost, well, very quickly, far beyond what you'd expect, thinking it was greatest things than sliced bread. They were going bankrupt. I mean, losing money in the policies. The policies were just getting killed. That was the company saying the risk is on the shoulders of the client. Then we should say that 100 times a day. Well, I was then pursued by a headhunter to go to another firm. And the other firm was a mutual company with whole life only. And, and I do have a tendency to get analytical and dig into the basics of almost anything I work with. So when I was on Wall Street, of course, I learned about bonds and whatever else that was in my way, um, but also about the way the firm operated. And when I got to the insurance industry, as I mentioned a moment ago, I was training people. So I got into the nitty gritty of annuities and I was training, uh, teaching classes on annuities. I was teaching about life insurance, oddly. But the idea of investments came up in one particular class I was uh, involved with, where there was um, a 20 something in the class of new salespeople who made a comment based on a different comment. His comment was, but you can always get 10% in the stock market. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that set me off in the direction because I knew that wasn't the case. That actually brings us right to where I want to go with this episode, which is, can't you just do a straight line projection? I mean, isn't that sort of what uh, the illustration software for Index Universal Life has done for us? It gives us this beautiful straight line average return over 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, whatever. And... Uh, before I get to that, and I want to get there, because I think you've got a lot of really important things to say about real return versus straight line projections, 
I want us to focus in on what happened recently. And this is as of spring, I believe, 2023, if I'm not mistaken, uh, something called AG49A and AG49B, Actuarial Guidelines A and B, pushed down on universal life. Can you tell us, because candidly, you are not the only person to have been figuring some of these things out, that there are some, I guess, rosy promises in the universal life world. Uh, and so now I think the actuaries are catching up to you and, and maybe other savvy financial professionals like yourself. What is AG49 and why does it matter? AG stands for actuarial guidance. And it is part of the, um, let's call it the regulators, the commissioners of the insurance industry in the States. And the first AG actuarial guidance 49 came out in 2015. AG 49A was a revision, which came out, I believe, in 2020. And then B came out uh, very recently. I think it have took effect this May, a month or two ago this year. But the, the idea was this. Imagine yourself to be 22 years old, fresh out of school, going to your first corporate job. You go to the HR department. And in the HR department, they sit you down, they give you a clipboard loaded with paper, little tabs everywhere, and they say, sign wherever you find the tab. Oh, and by the way, we're going to sign you up for the 401k plan, which you really should join. Because, you know, if you put money into the 401k, it's pre-tax, which is a good thing. And well, you know, the stock markets returned an average of 7.3% over the last 25 years. So, well, hold on. How old are you? Okay, you're 22. And when are you going to retire? Well, we'll use 65. Is that okay? Okay, we'll use 65. So let's see, 22 to 65 is 43 years. And I just said, the stock markets returned an average of 7.3% over the last 25 years. So we can look forward. And if you're going to retire at 65, if we use 7.3, well, wait, let's be conservative. We'll use 6.3. Is that okay with you? Good. 6.3. Okay. You're 22 to 65 years old. That's 43 years. And if we use 6.3% over the next 43, well, how much can you contribute? How much are you making? Well, wait, let's check here. Okay. Based on your income, if you could put $212.43 into your 401k every paycheck, over 43 years, at 6.3%, you're going to have, calculate, okay, you're going to have $1.33 million at age 65. How does that sound? Sign me up. That, that is a straight line projection, 6.3% year after year after year after year after year. Now, for the uninitiated, here's the deal. Where does the market go down? Is it in year or age 32, age 37, age 38 and 39, and age 40? Where? And when we look back and say the average return was 7.3, last week we talked about the average return being just average change. It's a very different thing. Mm -hmm. So what that 7.3 historical statement says is we're ignoring volatility. Don't worry about a thing. And, and guys, just, uh, just briefly, if you did not hear last week's episode, be sure to pause this one. Go back and listen to Les's whole explanation on how this works. This is really important for what Les is saying now. So sorry to interrupt you there, Les. Problem. So looking forward at 6.3, if we're ignoring the potential for volatility there, what we're doing is we're assuming an average return is essentially the same number year after year after year. It's not. Now, we know that. But if you're saying, well, it's going to work out over time anyway, no, it won't. Let's imagine you're 82 years old. And you're living off your savings, your investments, 
and the market goes down 35% and you're invested, what are you going to do? Do you pay your bills? Do you wait until the market returns to average? You call the landlord and say, uh, I can't pay you the rent until uh, the market returns to where it has to be. What do you do? What you're experiencing in that little example is volatility. And volatility is never your friend. So now let's turn it back into, well, imagine you're 30 or 40 or 50 and the stock market goes down and you're invested with a 401k or an IRA or a brokerage account. Did you experience volatility in those years? And the answer is, of course you did. But it didn't matter to you, did it? Because everybody's whispering or shouting, don't worry about it. Market always goes up over time. Don't worry about it. You're young. You have time to make it up. But you didn't really fret the idea of volatility being a big negative because you had an income. At 82, you're living off the savings. It's a very different scenario. That's a big, big difference there. Yeah, you, your income was sort of the shield against that volatility as you're working. But then in retirement, there is no shield. Exactly. So the idea of volatility... Um, and straight line projections. Straight line projections ignore the potential for volatility. So if I go back to examples, if I'm going up 10% and down 20% and up 3% and so on, those are real results. And real results are not the same as straight line projections. Straight line ignores yeah. those moves up and down. You're and different. You're saying universal life is has nothing to say about straight line projections, but their illustrations make it look like they do. Is that a fair summary well, of what, what, what they show in the numbers is a straight line for sure. And it, it actually tops out at some point in, at some age, 88 or 93, or depending on, on this the setup. But it goes in a fairly straightforward motion without any volatility, without any crazy ups and downs. And what the illustrations also do is they throw disclaimers all over the place. The idea that they say, uh, uh, you know, the market doesn't go in a straight line. So when you sign here, you're signing away your life, basically. Yeah. <laughs> the, right. And the, you understand everything that you're signing, which uh, no one... Oh, of course. Really and you've read every word. Right? So illustrations, for those who aren't aware, these are sort of spreadsheets that are handed to the buying public uh, showing, you know, these straight line projections, which less you just dismantled the reality of, of such straight line projections with universal life. Uh, and so the AG49 rules, what did those do to the assumptions on those big spreadsheets uh, that Universal Life um, shows? Well, what it shows, what it, what, it, what it tried to do, what it attempted to do was to level the playing field because companies were using 10% as their projection rate or 9% or some other figure, but they were all over the place. And very few people that look at life insurance or any financial instrument for that matter know what to ask or what numbers should be. So what AG49 back in 2015 did was it started to level it by saying, the most you can show in your projection is X, depending on a formula and so on. In AG49A in 2000, what did I say, with 2020? Um, it further leveled it by saying, you can't show beyond a certain point based on a formula. And then B, which started in May of this year, what companies had done in 2020 or subsequent to that was they started showing bonuses and buildups multipliers and a fancy yep. move to the left yep and by taking away that option that the insurance companies wanted to play with again trying to level the playing field 
to be fair, there is one complaint right now on those changes, the more recent changes, where, for example, an insurance company has a cap of 12%, going back to that, and another company showing the same limitation of, let's call it 7% for this suggestion. If they're both playing with a maximum 7% illustration, but one has a cap of 12 and one has a cap of 10, if they suffer a zero in any given year, and they're trying to make back what they need to show that somewhere close to what the indication was back when they bought the policy or had the policy early on, well, a 12% cap is going to give you the opportunity to make more money when the market goes up 17% than a 10% cap. So there's an advantage there. But as far as the illustration goes, that straight line stuff, first of all, straight line is a joke. And as we said earlier, yeah, it's only one half of the story. In fact, it's not even a full half. Yeah. There's a lot of new regulations that have been pushing down the rosy projections of universal life contract illustrations because too many people bought into those rosy projections. They they purchased what the, the agent was selling. And over time, they're starting to realize that not all that glitters is gold. Uh, and there's even been some lawsuits that have been coming up as I look at the landscape of universal life. And it seems like there's going to be even more regulations as I read kind of the news for AG49. Maybe there's even more to come. Is there a um, comparison here to what whole life insurance would provide? Is there a categorical difference? Should we be just as uh, skeptical of the illustrations on the life on the whole life insurance? spreadsheets that maybe we're reviewing for our clients? Well, step one, they both show straight line projections. There's very little option. What do you show instead? Where would you put the, uh, the factor of volatility? No one knows. So they both use straight line projections, but here's the difference. With the universal life, as we just said, it's related to the S&P index or a personal or proprietary index that an insurance company can use but it's related to volatility of some description in the stock market. With whole life insurance, you're not dealing with the stock market at all. What you're dealing with is what I refer to as a business model. And I imagine other people would like to call it the same thing. The business model for an insurance company is simply put, they sell insurance, they collect premiums, and they pay claims. Now, the difference between, of course, premiums and, and claims is a profit, or it should be. But they can adjust their business model and show consistency, which they have for, what, 150 years? Additionally, the idea of, even in bad times, being able to consistently show some sort of a profit and have that profit reflected in dividends that are shown to the holders of these policies, again, a big deal. The idea of these policies... Um, it's all about consistency. And we, we can't say that the dividend and or profitability of these companies is 100% consistent. There is some movement, but there are no zeros. There are no negatives. The companies that Mark, you and I use, uh, they've shown dividends without missing a single beat for over 100 years, right? Right. So try that with any Wall Street company or any investment account. The idea of consistency is absolutely key. So I can't say that a whole life policy doesn't use straight line projections. It does. But I can also say that the results don't vary widely. 
Yeah, that's actually a really good point. The difference that I see that I hear you saying with whole life insurance is the only variability is the amount of dividends that we're likely to get on a year-to-year basis. And as far as I can tell, having been in this world for over a decade now, dividends are not bouncing around like universal life uh, index crediting periods are. So dividend basis, dividend rate basis changes might be 10 basis points every two or three years. That's been my experience. That's not a lot. That's one-tenth of a percent change every year, two or three. And we just went through a worldwide pandemic and the companies that you and I work with have not really seen dividends change at all. In fact, with higher interest rates, we're seeing at least rumors of dividends possibly increasing as their asset to liability matching catches up and they buy those new bonds and so forth. So I have positive things to say about whole life insurance. And as far as AG49 goes, it's ironic to me that when you run an index universal life illustration at appropriate straight line projections, which you're right, those are a joke, as you said, but they're as close as we can get to the software allowing us to run it. When you run a new kind of um, uh, curtailed universal life illustration, it looks more realistic. It looks a lot like a whole life insurance product over time. Um, But the difference is there's no guarantee that you're going to have that quote unquote average straight line return. So I hope I'm hopeful that folks are given a more clear perspective on what they're buying when they look at universal life versus whole life. Les, as we kind of wrap up here, what hope can you give our audience and what can you leave them in the way of uh, things to be aware of? Two things. Let's start with um, straight line projections. Going back to the joke about HR and 6.3% and all the rest of that, the point then becomes this. The bulk of the clientele that I see, most of them are between the age that there's one large group between the age of 50 and 65. And the reason I see that group, the reason they're coming to see me is because they're their first question is, look, I was supposed to have 1.33 million by this point, and all I have is 347,000. I don't know what happened. Why is it? Can you help yeah. me? And the answer is straight line projections. Now, going back to that example with HR, here's the joke. It's not so much that you're going to have 1.33. It's this. It sets you up to think that if you put away $212.43 per paycheck, that's all you have to do. It takes you away from having to worry about or even think about volatility. Mm. Volatility is a killer. That's the problem. So going back to IUL or UL or any of the uh, ULs, VUL, this is the one thing you should ask your salesperson if you're interested in these things. Have them show you the columns of results, which we're referring to, the straight line projection. Point to the zeros that invariably show up at some age and say, what are these zeros? Why are they here? Get a full well, explanation on and, that. And answer, go ahead and answer that for us, Les. Just give us the, the punch on that. What does the zero on that illustration mean? It means that the cost of insurance, that one-year term insurance that we've been talking about, increasing in cost year after year after year, it erodes even the best column of numbers in there. It gets to the point where the insurance company is grabbing your cash, eroding the results, 
And in turn, your policy will either lapse or the company will say, okay, well, we need more money. Here's the amount. Pay up. When will you have it here? It's got to be here by Tuesday to save the policy. Yep. Yep. And unfortunately, I see this story play out over and over. And then add on top of this, the, the double problem of trying to live on this in retirement. You know, not only is the insurance company sucking up money, but so are you because you want groceries, assuming, and grandkids probably want some kit, some Christmas presents. So this becomes a very difficult maneuvering tool, the exact opposite of what, you know, we uh, hopefully set up our whole life policies for, for our clients. So Les, this is just gold. Everyone, again, needs to check out your blog and reach out to you if they'd like to dig into this further. Uh, would you mind telling us how do we find out more about what you're writing and what you're doing for your clients? Well, again, uh, my blog is at my website, which is 82financial.com. Um, what I do for my clients, I, I am developing a, a stronger focus on old age. And it's not that I service more people that are old, but I'm anticipating that everyone will get old. And to set them up properly ahead of time would be a good idea. I don't think too many advisors are looking at it that, quite that way. It's a Certainty, fair assumption. Simplicity. Folks keep having birthdays. So I think that's a fair assumption, Les. That's great. So that's 8-2. The number is 8-2-financial.com. You know, Les, you recently wrote a blog post on why you'll never sell universal life. And you've been very generous with your time, very generous with your wisdom. And I think if folks do nothing else, before you get that universal life contract, listen to these two episodes again, back to back, and you learn more the more you listen. So listen to it a second time so you can dig into it and also to share it with friends and family who may be considering this tool, uh, if we can call it that. Uh, as well. So Les, thank you very much for your time together with me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Thank you again, Les, for coming on the show today. And I just want to say again, what a great guy and a great mind. And I think someone with the right heart to try to help people reach their financial objectives and understand what myths they're being sold when they look at the markets, whether it's stocks and bonds, or other insurance products like Index Universal Life Insurance. You know, and as I wrap up, I want to be very clear. Les and I, and any bank-on-yourself professional, typically has the ability to sell Index Universal Life Insurance. We have that license. We're able to do that. We have the contracts with the insurance companies that allow for that. So it's not like there's some reason other than our pure interest in helping people reach their goals that keep us from wanting to use IUL products. Any kind of Index Universal Life product is going to have these same, oh, time bombs, as I said in the previous episode. So please understand, it's not out of an interest of trying to sell you one thing over another. It's purely and truly out of our desire to make sure that you reach your goals without taking a bunch of unnecessary risk. Now, I'm big into risk. I'm a business owner. I take risk with my investments. But I don't need unnecessary risk. And I believe that Index Universal Life and most Universal Life Insurance policies have baked into them unnecessary risk, the ingredient that just ruins the entire cake. So thank you again, Les, for coming on today. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Again, be sure to check out our summit. Our summit is coming up this September 6th and 7th, 2023. And we've got great speakers who are going to be there. There's going to be some content you don't want to miss, deeper dives into what we've discussed today and on other topics as well. You can find it all and sign up and RSVP at notyouraveragefinancialsummit.com. See you there. Thank you for joining me, Les, and everyone. 
for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.